I give you all a warm welcome to our service tonight. Uh, we'll begin by singing from Psalm 145a in the Scottish Psalter, and we'll sing verses 1 to 8. Of thee extol my God, O King, I'll bless thy name always. Thee will I bless each day, and will thy name forever praise. We'll stand to sing. I'll be
Lord, we give you thanks <clears throat> for the words we've been singing about uh, blessing your name uh, always. And there are many reasons why that is the case. There's your overall providential care, uh, reasons for us giving thanks to you, even if at times some circumstances that we go through are very difficult. But it is good for us to bless you for your uh, providential uh, arrangements of our lives. But above and over that is the provision you have made for our sinfulness. And you sent your son into this world to live and die on our behalf. And then on the third day, raised him from the dead and gave to him uh, the highest place at your right hand, Lord of all. And it's good for us to bless you for that because every aspect of what Jesus did, both in the past when he was here and what he's doing now as the exalted Savior and what he will yet do in the ages to come, uh, all for the benefit of your people. They therefore have reasons to bless you always. And the always is not limited uh, to life in this world. So Lord, uh, we give you thanks for the amazing uh, things you have done. Human words are inadequate uh, to fully express the greatness of your grace and to probe into the fullness of your love. Uh, we can scratch the outside, as it were, but we are, in this life anyway, still a long way from uh, even appreciating uh, what the depth of your love is. But we thank you, Lord, that you give to us information in your word that is sufficient for us in this life. And you also give to us opportunities to uh, participate in special ways of expressions of your love. And um, the Lord's Supper, uh, we know, is a way whereby <coughs> we can uh, reveal your, our love to you, but it's also a means whereby you remind us of how you showed your love in sending Jesus. And there's also an expression of your love in the fact that it's a family gathering and the children of God gather together uh, to thank their Heavenly Father. And as Jesus himself said, uh, we just do this until he comes. So there's a future dimension to it. Uh, whatever else we say about each Lord's Supper that we participate in, uh, the reality is we're getting closer and closer uh, to the last one. And whether that's the last one we'll have ourselves personally in this life 
or the last one there'll ever be in the history of the world. Uh, we're getting closer to that. And we thank you, Lord, that all these things are expressions of your grace and mercy. And the fact is that we need to be reminded of your mercy, not merely intellectually, but in an experiential way. We need to know what the psalmist said when he said that goodness and mercy all my life shall surely follow me. And therefore, here we are, and we are in one of these places where your goodness and your mercy is once again exhibited and where once again it can be experienced. So Lord, we pray you come and meet with us <clears throat> and that we would uh, be conscious very much that um, although we cannot see the Savior, yet his, his presence can be known by the Spirit that he can take other things of Christ and reveal them to us, and we pray that would be the case. You know what's in our minds at the moment, things that may distract us, uh, fears that we may have, whatever, that these things can um, cause our minds to wander, and we just pray you would help us to focus uh, in a spiritual way on what we are doing. Uh, remember those who are not able to be with us, whether for uh, ill health or for other reasons, uh, we pray that you be with them where they are. And those who are not well, that whatever treatment they are receiving uh, would be uh, good and useful for them. Remember too those who are mourning, and we pray that you would uphold such and that they would be conscious that you are there and the God who is our refuge and our strength. We pray, Lord, for children who are here, that while they watch what's going on, uh, that they would um, be given some understanding of it as well, and that you yourself would be working in their hearts, even as you're working in the hearts of the adults, to see something of, the, of what Jesus did when he was in this world. So, Lord, we pray that you would remember us in our service and bless all other services taking place in this town and elsewhere where your name has been exalted and people are giving thanks to you and blessing your name. So be with us in our service, we pray, and remember us for good. For Christ's sake, amen. I'd like us to read from the book of Ephesians and chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, and we'll read down to verse 2 of chapter 5. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thieves no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And may God bless that reading. We'll now sing from Psalm 103 in the Scottish Psalter and verses 8 to 13. The Lord our God is merciful and he is gracious, long-suffering and slow to wrath, in mercy plenteous. We'll stand to sing these verses. The Lord our God is
can turn back to the chapter, the passage we read, and I'd like us to think about the first two verses of Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Uh, we all know that uh, role models are, are very important. Um, and it's, there's a great emphasis in our contemporary world on the importance of having uh, role models and, and I'm sure we can all understand the usefulness of that. But we're also aware that sometimes the role models uh, don't always live up to their um, influence and, and when that happens then there can be a lot of disappointment and even disillusion. On the other hand, role models might be so competent and so um, capable uh, that those who look up to them and perhaps aspire to be like them find that they just can't do it. That uh, the gifts and the qualities that the role model has are just always seem to be several rungs above what they can ever reach. And of course that's, um, that's the way life is. And, and um, it's not just in the outside world we need role models, but um, in the church we need them as well. And rather surprisingly we might think, but uh, actually when we look at his life it's not very surprising, but Paul regarded himself as a role model. And, and quite frequently he tells people to do what he does. And, and doesn't try and um, qualify uh, uh, that particular exhortation by some kind of uh, false humility. He, he just, just says, um, do it. What you've seen in me, do. And as an individual, we can look at Paul and say, yeah, well, you certainly were very devoted and, um, uh, to Christ and so on. And of course, when we look at him, uh, we might find ourselves, well, how can we be like him? And Paul's not the only one that's a role model for us in the Bible. Um, Barnabas, even although on one occasion he did lose his temper, but, but generally throughout his, um, the description that's given of him is of a, a man to emulate and to, and to help see as a means of helping others, a son of consolation, which is a, a title given to him by those who valued the way he lived. And there's many more that we could mention in the Bible. And not only are individuals exhorted to be 
uh, role models, but even churches are exhorted to be role models. I mean, Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, um, tells them that their example uh, had, had been their way of life so shortly after they had been converted and their dedication and so on and their eagerness to spread the gospel it had been com- become known throughout Greece and that's extraordinary isn't it and within a couple of months the whole of Greece knew that there was this group of people up in the north in Thessalonica who were radically different. And Paul says about them that they're, they're a lesson to other churches. And I suppose we can look at Thessalonica and say, well, well, yeah, that's, that's some group to try and emulate. But again, they're, they're just humans. But here in these verses, uh, the role models are divine. Be imitators of God, God the Father, as obedient children, and walk in love as Christ did. So the, the role models are, well, if we thought Paul was a few rungs up the ladder, and if we think that the church on Thessalonica was um, better, what can we say when we're told to be like God? and told to be like Christ. It's, I don't know, don't know what's going through our mind when we were told to be like God the Father and to be like Christ, the man who went to the cross. But anyway, they are the role models not just for what we could call um, more advanced believers, but they are role models for the people who are going to be mentioned in this letter. They are role models for the husbands and wives, for the parents and children, for the masters and slaves. All of them have the same role models. And we may say to ourselves, can children do that? Well, as we know from what Jesus said, sometimes children are more like God than adults are. Unless you become like little children. So therefore, there's no reason why this exhortation doesn't apply to all age groups and all social levels. Whether you're a master 
or whether you're a bond slave, whether you've got all the rights that the Roman Empire gives to you, like a master would have had, or whether you have none of them, like slaves would have had. They are, all of them, together to imitate God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we're urged by Paul to examine ourselves and so let us eat. I mean, Paul doesn't say, examine yourselves and 24 hours later, eat. He just says, examine yourselves and eat when he's talking of the Lord's Supper there's almost the way he describes it there's almost not to be a time gap and it looks to me as if this pair of verses is a good way for us to examine ourselves just as we're about to eat. So I'll try and work that way. Whether I'll succeed or not, it's another matter altogether. But the imitating God the Father and Jesus, well, of course, we don't exactly imitate them in their fullness. Obviously, that's impossible, isn't it? I mean... It's not possible for you and I to forgive every single Christian in the world, is it? And it's not possible for you and I to exactly walk with the same dedication as maybe somebody who at this moment has been persecuted for the faith. But while we can't um, do it to the same degree as uh, God the Father does or as Jesus does. There is a sense, and we have to watch how we phrase this, but there is a sense in which we have the same power, don't we? I mean, who is at work within us? The Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And um, Paul, as we know, prays that um, his readers, there in chapter 1, that having been given the Spirit, they will be able to know what are the riches of his inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. I mean, that's an, an astonishing statement. As far as every Christian is concerned, the degree of divine power that is working in that individual is immeasurable. So therefore, if we were to think of uh, the greatest expressions of earthly power, whatever that might be, 
We, see, we can saw the power of the wind quite often. But that's measurable. The BBC man will put up this little figure and tell you it's 75 miles an hour or whatever it is. It's measurable. But within you and me, at this precise moment, there's immeasurable power. And we need that to imitate God, don't we? We just, we might say to ourselves, in such a situation, some situation, whatever it happens to be, I can't do that here. It's, it's not possible for me to do this here. I'm out of my depths. But how does that link into the fact that at every moment, the immeasurable greatness of his power is working towards us? We're not conscious of it. I mean, God's power cannot be sensed. It's not like some kind of swoosh that comes along. It's not like the power that drives a boat through the water. You can't say, I felt the power of God this morning as I was reading the Bible. If you can say that, you can measure it. It's immeasurable. This is something that we have to just grasp it as happening. And we are the only comparison that Paul gives for God's immeasurable great power is the resurrection of Christ. When he was raised, not just out of the, the, the tomb to walk about the garden, but that he was raised from the, the tomb to the throne. That's the expression of God's power. And as we look at that, well, who can decide how much that is? But the one thing we can say is that because it's the Holy Spirit, it's divine power. And it's at work within us. It's not our power. And that's why Paul can say elsewhere, isn't it? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So as we think of these um, instructions here, and at first glance they might just seem to us to be Paul asking for the impossible. But he's not asking for the impossible. He's telling these believers in Ephesus, and by extension he's telling us, this is who you should be. Imitators of God the Father. And imitators 
of Jesus. Of course, Jesus said that, didn't he? He said it to the disciples in the after room. In the upper room, you call me Master and Lord, and ye do well. And he says, I've given to you an example for you to do. That particular example was washing the disciples' feet, which none of them felt able to do at that moment. So therefore, being like God the Father, well, we can't be like him in his fullness. And being like Jesus, we can't be like him in the degree of his dedication. But they are our examples. So I just like to think these two things, imitating the Father and imitating Jesus. Imitating the Father. It's common to say of somebody, isn't it? He's just like you, or you're just like your father. And maybe it's mannerisms or ways of expressing things or just interests a person has for some reason without him even necessarily trying. He just does what his father did, or whatever. But the problem with um, all human uh, fathers is that none of them were perfect. And somewhere along the line, uh, they just fell short in some way or other. But here we are called to be like the perfect father. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that we are to be like the Heavenly Father and how we interact and do things. That you will be sons of your Father in Heaven. That people will look at you and say, you're just like your Father. <coughs> what an extraordinary thing that is to say of someone. You're just like the God of Heaven. Jesus said to his disciples, be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. Because he causes his son, the son, to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. He just gives. And the giving is not conditional. It's not I'm only going to give it to those who somehow or other recognize me. But he just shows his mercy, his kindness, his compassion, constantly and everywhere. And that's a command from Jesus, isn't it? Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. I don't know why the man who divided the various letters of the Bible into chapters decided whether where to put the end of chapters and the beginning of chapters. But um, 
there is kind of something uh, not quite right by putting the end of a chapter or the beginning of a chapter with the word therefore. Because the word therefore is always connected to what was said before it. And if we started reading our passage tonight with verse, with verse 1, what would go through our minds when we said the word therefore? The word therefore is connected to the previous verse, which is the last verse of the previous chapter, where Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. What, which feature of God are we being asked to be like him in? And the aspect that's highlighted there in verse, the last verse of the previous chapter is his forgiveness. Forgive. As the Heavenly Father forgave you, is what Paul says to them. Forgiving one another. It's in the present tense. It's not something that um, we did for them 10 years ago or even 10 days ago. But it's forgiving, it's a constant attitude. Something that just flows from within us. And when we think of God the Father's forgiveness, well, there's lots of things we could say about it. I mean, we've heard it all many times, I'm sure, but he forgives us fully. And he, he forgives us freely. And we could also say that he, he forgives us justly. Because the person who, has, who is forgiven by him, well, his sins have been paid when Jesus suffered on the cross. So it's, it's not the Heavenly Father abandoning his rules when he forgives us. He forgives us justly. And he also forgives us comforted, comfortingly. He, he wants us to know he's forgiven us. And he's therefore telling, Paul is telling the Christians there, be like your father, forgiving. And I think that's quite useful for us as we come to the Lord's table. Because whatever else actually we have to anyone else in the world, with every single other person at the Lord's table, we have to be forgiving forgiving towards them whether or not they've done anything it's just going to be our attitude forgive it's almost forgiving in advance ready to forgive and as we think of the heavenly father's forgiveness where is, where is its source Well, of course, it's in his love. 
I mean, every person that sitting at the Lord's table, the Father loves them all the same. And he's loved each of them for the same length of time. If we want to use that language about him, he has always loved them. Eternal love. And he was thinking about them wholeheartedly long before any of them existed. Our Heavenly Father's love, well, he knew that his love would involve forgiveness. And he went that way, we might say, in his great plan, his love would be a forgiving love. And, you know, Peter, as we know, once asked Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother? And he came up with what he thought was a good number, seven times. And Jesus says to him, seven times? How about 70 times seven? Which doesn't really mean 490. As if we're to count them. He's just saying, be constant. Constant in your forgiveness. And that's quite a challenge. So how are we to forgive the way the Father forgives? Well, I think we have to forgive with our heads. We have to think doctrinally as we um, engage in any kind of Christian activity. So when we're asked here by Paul to forgive, we have to forgive those who are fellow sinners. It's possible or likely that every Christian may sense that someone has to, he has to forgive someone. At the same time, he or she may remember that someone has to forgive them. And the ideal answer to that twofold dilemma is for both of them to forgive, isn't it? And we forgive fellow sinners. There's no other kind of person that we can forgive. But also to forgive those for whom Jesus died. I mean, if I take it upon myself to withhold forgiveness from another Christian, I am taking it on myself to refuse to forgive someone for whom Jesus died. And that's, well, what word is there to describe that? As I think forgiveness in my head, and I 
have other Christians around me. Well, who are they? Well, they're being sanctified. Their sanctification doesn't depend on my forgiveness. But it may be affected by my refusal to do it. So, I forgive them in my head, doctrinally. They're sinners. Jesus died for them. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying them. And where are they going? Well, they're all going to heaven. And it's rather strange if I was to refuse to forgive someone on the road to heaven. So I have to forgive with my head. I've also to forgive with my heart. Everything a Christian does, his or her affections must be involved in it. We do nothing stoically. Our affections must be involved. You can't forgive in a detached manner. Instead, it has to be full as we mentioned earlier about God the Father, and free. And it has to be comforting, helping. And Paul is just saying to these Christians, this is to be your spirit, forgiving. And we forgive because it's brotherly love. And brotherly love is the evidence of conversion. By this we know if we have passed from death unto life because we love the brothers. And therefore, forgiving is an expression of love. And as we examine ourselves so that we can eat, it's important to forgive with our heads and with our hearts. And also we are to forgive with our hands. And there's numerous ways of doing it. Every day, there may be the opportunity in one way or another just to show that we are forgiving people. Now we don't have lists in our mind of those that we find that they shouldn't be forgiven. So, how does God forgive us? Well, we're told in Isaiah 55 that he will abundantly pardon. Now, in a certain sense, 
The word abundantly is not needed, is it? It, could, it would still be true if all it said was, God will pardon. And if you're pardoned, you're pardoned. So why does Isaiah want to say God will abundantly pardon? Well, it could be because the sins that he forgives are numerous. And that may be the case of what it means. Or it could mean that every one of God's attributes is involved in the forgiveness. That his wisdom forgives. That his power forgives. That his knowledge forgives. That everything about him forgives. Because in the, the, the ultimate sense, only God can do something abundantly. And for us to grasp, that is a wise thing for God to forgive. It's the expression of his wisdom. That is a loving thing for God to forgive. It's an expression of his heart. That he forgives us comfortingly is an expression of his power. Because he could use his power in all kinds of ways. But for him to do it in a comforting way. So, imitate the Father. We're coming to the family meal. Imitate the Father. I would also to imitate Jesus. I don't know why a new sentence begins with uh, verse 2. I mean, it could just easily be a continuation of the previous one. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. It's the two things together. The way it's kind of sits there with the full stop sort of suggests two different activities. And that may be right. But it could also be the case that there's one activity in two different ways of showing it. We imitate the Father as beloved children and we walk in love. Following the example of Christ. Reminding us that... We can't have one without the other. And how did Christ walk? What was his lifestyle like that we are to um, focus on and imitate? And we're told there what the, the motive of his service was. Walk in love as Christ loved us. I mean, that way of expressing it indicates the 
ongoing nature of Christ's love. Almost as if that was all he did. Christ loved us. Of course, we know he did a lot more than that. But what's been highlighted is his ongoing attitude towards his people. And as we thought earlier of the Heavenly Father's love, when did Jesus' love begin? Well, began in eternity. And while it's hard for us to grasp eternity, one thing we could say about it is there was plenty of time <clears throat> for him to change his mind. But he didn't, did he? This was his constant outlook. And however long eternity is, and it's impossible for us to start estimating that because we automatically think in terms of time. But Jesus, the eternal Son, at whatever stage we want to look at it, the one thing that can be said about him at every moment is he loved us. And that's extraordinary. Throughout his entire existence, which never had a beginning, he has loved us. There wasn't a moment when he started to love us. So, that's a wonderful reality. But that's the motive for all he did. Why did he come into the world? Because he loved us. Why did he live in Nazareth? In a very poor family? Because he loved us. Why did he have all these 30 silent years? Because he loved us. Love was behind everything he did. Why has he ascended to heaven now? Well, there's lots of answers to that question, but one of them is he loves us. Why is he preparing a place for us to go to? Because he loved us. What an incredible motive he had. A beautiful motive. The best motive. But as we look at Paul's description here, we don't just see Christ's motive, but we also see Christ's method. And what was Christ's method? Well, it was to give himself. And when we read that he gave himself up, We're not allowed to somehow or other start taking pieces out of the word himself and say, well, it didn't involve this and it didn't involve that. He gave himself fully, 
wholly and entirely. And we are to be astonished at the, the intensity and the determination that he had. If we had met him on any day of his earthly journey, and if we could have asked him, how much are you giving for your people today? The answer he would give is myself. I am giving myself. Would always be his self-description. Depending on the circumstances and what was required of him. But he never held anything back. And when we come to Calvary, how much did Jesus give? Well, theologians argue about that, and all that has its place. But here Paul just tells us, he gave himself. He offered up himself to God, his perfect life. He just offered it up there in its entirety. He gave himself up even to the extent that he had to cry to his father, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that cry would never have been made if he hadn't given himself up, if he had held something back. But he gave himself up. And that was the, the manner of it. 100% commitment every day. But 100% on the day of days. When he paid the penalty for our sin. And Paul also reminds us here as we look at this. And not only do we see his motive. And not only do we see his method. But we see his manner. He gave himself up to be a sacrifice. And we can see easily, can't we, that sacrificial living is the way to walk in love. But without sacrifice, it could always be said, your walk could be better. There has to be sacrifice. That was the goal that Jesus had. To give himself up there on the cross. To pay the penalty for our sins. To endure the punishment that we deserved. And his sacrifice, although it involved our sins, was perfect. It was entirely acceptable. 
totally amazing. Nothing left out. Every ounce of the divine penalty was paid by him. And we can't measure that any more than we can measure the amount of power that is for us. Nor can we measure the amount of power that Jesus had to undergo as he suffered the wrath of God in our place. And we're also told by Paul there, in addition to what Christ's motive was, and in addition to what the method and manner of his sacrifice was, but we're also told what God thought of it. The God who, in order for us to be forgiven, turned his comforting presence away from his beloved son. But as Jesus suffered, the aroma that went up to heaven was the most beautiful fragrance that the Heavenly Father ever sensed from anyone on earth. And even when Jesus made that cry, why have you forsaken me? The response of heaven was not puzzlement as to why he's saying that. The response of heaven was the trust that he is saying in these words, my God, my God, were totally fragrant. And at that moment, even as Rutherford says later of Christ's presence in heaven, but it was true even at that moment that it filled heaven with ravishing perfume. And as Jesus suffered there, why is he suffering? He's suffering that we can be forgiven and that we will be forgiving. He's suffering for both reasons. And therefore we are to imitate him and to give to God what pleases him. That was the goal of Jesus in his life. I always do the things that please him, he said about himself. And he was conscious that when he always did these things, he was conscious that the Father was pleased. And even although we are sinful, and even although we fall far short, we can please God. And one way, and maybe the clearest way, whereby we can please him, is by being forgiving. Because that's who he is. And that's what the verse in the previous chapter says. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you.
I suppose as we look at the cross and with all its ugliness and all its um, distastefulness, I mean, there's one moment when the impression is given that fragrance from above has come down. And that's when Jesus said to the penitent criminal who had asked him forgiveness. In his reply, Jesus referred to the garden. The garden where the fragrances are constantly, as it were, blowing in the presence of God. And he said, and maybe it's a hint that he was longing to get there. He said to the penitent criminal, today, well, there's only a few hours to go on that day, today you'll be with me in paradise. And paradise, of course, this heavenly garden is for the forgiven. And therefore, Jesus there, on, in, at Calvary, you know, he prayed for the soldiers to be forgiven. Father, forgive them. And he forgave that penitent criminal immediately. And how comfortingly he did it. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. So we are called to be like God. And as we come to the Lord's table shortly, we are coming as the forgiven. And the forgiven should be forgiving. So shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks for your astonishing grace. How can we possibly assess it? You're the God of all grace. And the more we experience it, the more we realize there's much more available. Help us, Lord, to, to just be marked as those who are forgiven. And to show that we have been forgiven by having a forgiving spirit. So Lord, remember us as we come to the meal and in a sense, having examined ourselves, let us eat. So Lord, be with us, we pray, for your own name's sake, amen. We can sing from Psalm 118, from, and sing Psalms, verses 21 to 29. You answered me, I will give thanks. Salvation comes from you alone. The stone the builders had refused has now become the cornerstone. Verses 21 to 29.
verses that um, are read before the Lord's Supper uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And after his example, I will give thanks. 
Lord, we give you thanks for the provision you have made. We realize that they are only symbols, uh, symbols of a great reality, uh, the body and blood of Christ. And as our eating, uh, in a sense, symbolizes participation, uh, we realize that it was our sins that he had to pay the penalty for. But we also realize at the same time that he has provided a great salvation. And as we eat and drink of his, uh, his um, chosen emblems, uh, we are symbolically participating in both the reason for Jesus dying, but also in the results of his death. And we ask you, Lord, that we would eat and drink uh, with gratitude, uh, with love, and with intentions, <coughs> intentions to be like Christ. So help us, Lord, to do that. So we pray you be with us now as we take the bread and take the wine. In your own name, amen. If all of us just hold on to the bread until we all get the wine as well.
Uh, we can uh, close by singing from Psalm 133 and sing Psalm. <coughs> how excellent a thing it is, how pleasant and how good, when brothers dwell in unity and live as brothers should. We can sing the whole psalm. Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.